Hi guys, just to let you know that this episode discusses themes of eating disorders and body dysmorphia, which may be triggering to some of you. As always, look after yourself and only listen if it feels safe for you. Hi, welcome back to Open Mind with me, Frankie Bridge. Today I'm joined by the lovely Zoe Hartman. You might have seen her presenting loads of things on the TV. She also does a little bit of acting. And we were just discussing her hair. She just looks beautiful. So we're doing this over Zoom. And you look so fresh and... I don't know, you look gorgeous. Mate, thank you for saying that, but I've literally had one of the most hilarious like comedy mornings where I thought that we were recording later. So I was doing a workout at home, I had the puppy there. Then I get a text from my agent going, you all set for 10.30? And I was like... No! What? Oh, is that why you're running late? And I was like, oh my God! <laughs> Hence why I'm still dressed in my gym kit and I haven't had a shower. So people oh have just God. seen me on the underground just going... Oh, trying to get in. Here I am, I'm here. Oh my God, you got in quick. You <laughs> yes. must live near work then. We, we live out in Surrey, but from Wokey, oh. it's literally like 25 minutes on the train. It's so quick. You could have just come here to do it. I live oh, in where Surrey. Oh, you're joking. Yeah. That would have been so much nicer <laughs> next time. Next time. How are you? Thanks for having me on. What a treat. That's okay. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. You know what? I found really interesting. You're one of those people that obviously I've heard of and I've seen around, but not until I've done like my research did I know too much about you. And that's yeah. what I love about doing the podcast is there's always these names or these people that I've met a few times. And then when I actually start to do a little bit of uh, digging <laughs> I'm like oh I did not know that about you so you're definitely one of those people I thought I've um, been around for a while Frankie it's one of those I'm a bit like um like cheese that just keeps getting smellier <laughs> with time I've been doing this since I was 21 yeah. I had my tv career started after I came off a channel 4 show called playing it straight I was a baby really and then I worked in telly all through my 20s on ITV and various other bits and pieces and then I've been at heart about six years So, yeah, I've been around the block, mate. So I feel like, how did you end up in TV then so early on at such a young age? Do you know what's quite a funny story? So I went, I like left school, packed my bag, went off travelling and was coming to the end of my round-the-world trip. Just went away for 10 months, just me on my own. It was amazing. Mm. My mum rung me and said, Channel 4 are looking for this girl for this show and you'd be amazing for it. Anyway, so I went to these auditions and when I tipped up to Channel 4, they said to me, look, we've actually found the girl, so I'm really sorry you're too late. And I said, well, look, I'm just going to sit in the reception, like really ballsy, 21 years old. So I said, I'll stay here for an hour if you want to come down at any point. I said, it was weird. I just got a feeling Did that you? they weren't that happy with their decision. Yeah. So I sat in the reception. They left me waiting 45 minutes and I was about to get up and walk out and go home on the train. When one of the producers came down and she said, look, we're actually not that happy with the girl that we've chosen for the show. So why don't you come up and do a little piece to camera? So I was like, fucking God. So up I went, did it. And then I was leaving and they called and said, we want you to come back, meet all the rest of the team. We want you to meet the production company. And within a week, I'd flown to Mexico to shoot Playing It Straight, which June Sarpong was presenting. Um, But I I did acting when I was at school, all through my school life and at college. That's all I wanted to do, really. And then I fell into presenting because of that. Yeah. So did you take many knockbacks then? I suppose if you'd been doing stuff like that from such a young age, did you have many knockbacks before that? Because you sound like you were pretty confident at the time. Yeah, I guess that was my first real... I was in a BBC One drama called No Bananas when I was about 10 years old, and my cousin right. was a director. So I did like a little audition for that, but it wasn't like... This was like my, my first kind of major thing. 
it has been a series of knockbacks ever since. So yeah. I'm used to those knockbacks. I think you have to have really thick skin. And I think you never know you've got the job until you've signed on the dotted line and you're in the studio or in wherever you are doing it, on location shooting it. But yeah, it's really hard. This industry is really tough. Do you find like you have that imposter syndrome ever? Like I find I've been in this industry since I was 12 and I still always feel like someone's going to tap me on the back and be like, you're not actually supposed to be here. This isn't your job or I don't know. It's weird. I can't explain it. It's just the oddest feeling. I totally get what you're saying and I get it all the time because for me, it was never about being and I'm sure you feel the same. I don't want to be famous. I don't Mm. want to be a celebrity. I want to work. I love my work. So it's always been about that. I constantly have imposter syndrome, especially at the red carpets where I'm like this. Oh, I I relax your face. I'm like, I get this funny, like, I have one eye that's like bigger (laughs) than the other, one smaller than the other. And and it comes out on the red carpet because I'm so uncomfortable. I think I must tense my face. I don't even know how it works, but I must tense my face in a certain way that makes it come out. And then every picture that I get on the red carpet that I've spent like three hours getting ready for, I hate because I've got this dodgy eye that just comes out when I'm I think and I genuinely think it's where I'm like oh there's just so many people taking pictures and it's horrible I get really nervous that I get really nervous and it's really funny because I've on many occasions I've turned around to not face the cameras and go like this yeah because it's my mouth that goes really stiff and then they're like smile and you're like I just can't do it oh no yeah it's funny though because you you seem like you have this way of coping with it now, but I know you've spoken in the past about suffering with anorexia when you were mm. younger. Mm. Um, is that something that you still still worry about now or do you feel like you've got it under control? Definitely got my illness under control. It was a really, really dark period of my life and mm-hmm. I've spoken about it before, but it, it really took the life out of me. I was dead for a really long time and yeah. that was like no periods achy bones, hair falling out, just a a shell of a person, really. And I was just miserable. I was really sad all the time. Did you know it at the time, like at the time that you had it? Did you you feel like you were aware that you were suffering with an eating disorder? I dressed it up as taking control in an area of my life where everything else was out of control. And I think coming off the back of playing it straight, which did really well, I then got an agent and I was sort of thrust slightly into people recognising me. And I was just a bit of a naive girl. And I think what happened was that part of my life I could control. So I was going to the gym twice a day and writing down everything that I was eating. And it it became apparent over the sort of following years. That's what it was. But obviously, in the midst of it, you're in denial and you're denying it to everybody else. Yeah. It actually doesn't seem... I think also it just becomes a way of life. Like, I I suffered with not very badly anorexia, like an eating disorder for a while. And it wasn't until I wrote my book that... I had it properly confirmed to me because I had to look through my doctor's notes with my therapist. And I was like, oh, so I actually did have an eating disorder. And she was like, yes. And I was like, at the time, I just saw it as I was just watching what I ate. I enjoyed being thin. And the more that people said to me, oh, you look really thin, the kind of more it spurred me on and made me feel good. And then it just became a way of life. I didn't even have to think about it. I didn't even have to think I'm not eating carbs or I'm not eating X, Y and Z. It just happened. Yeah, that is exactly it. Like you said, it gets dressed up as something else, like normal life. People giving you compliments like, oh, 
it's not really a compliment when someone says, oh, gosh, you look a bit slim. But in your head, you're like, yes, excellent. I just think loads of women are going through it. We're not really having those open discussions about it because it's a bit like, oh, why don't you just go and have a meal or go go and have a McDonald's? And you're like, I'm actually suffering really badly here. I need some help. So it took me quite a long time to come out of it. I think I was probably 27. So I had it for about four or five years, if I'm honest. And Um, did any of your family ever notice, do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. so they tried to speak to you about it. Yeah, if you've ever tried to talk to somebody suffering from anorexia about it, you know you just get a door slammed in your face and I'm absolutely fine. And because I was training so much, I was actually quite muscular. I was under seven stone, but my body fat was like 5%, 4%. It was Uh just unbelievable. So every time my mum tried to broach the subject with me, I would just tell her to leave me alone and there was nothing wrong and she didn't need to worry. And because they were living in Africa, there was nobody to see me really on a day-to-day basis to check in on me. I'm sure you're the same, right? When you're out on tour and you're doing all those things, it's like people you just get on with it people don't notice I think like I never sat down to have meals with people as such because we were always on the move so it's so easy to get away with it Mm. but now I'm a parent I I just think for your mum at that time she just must have been terrified and you must have that feeling of just eat it must just get to that point where you just that's all you can think of it's just they just want you to eat and that's not really the way to go around it No, I know. And I know that my mum tried everything and she's a really wonderful woman. And and my mum and dad, to be fair, actually, he was brilliant about it. But all you want for your children is for them to be happy and healthy. And when you see them wasting away in front of your eyes, that must have been Mm. terrifying for her. But in return, she's spoken about how my mum was a model working in London in the 60s and like definitely restricted food. And I, I reckon a lot of that rubbed off on us. And that is why now... As a mum to a stepdaughter, Isla, and my daughter, Luna, I'm so aware of what I say to them around food. I never comment on any of that. It's all healthy and positive at home. I think it's really important to do that for them. Yeah, I've never really thought of it like that. I suppose if you're around it when you're growing up. I know people have spoken about it, but... And I, I guess I am a little bit more complacent because I have two boys, but yeah. boys can still suffer with eating disorder. I had a friend that suffered with an eating disorder, but I think you people just don't really think about it as much with boys. And I'm probably a bit complacent with that, I think. I remember vividly, I feel quite disloyal telling this story, but I came back from Australia. My mum picked me up from the airport and she didn't mean anything by it, but my mum has definitely focused her life on looking beautiful as a model. Mm. And it was like the affirmation of, oh, I'm beautiful and oh, my daughter's beautiful and all this shit, which I hate. Yeah. And I remember her picking me up and I was sitting in the car next to her and she just grabbed hold of my love handle and she said, oh... Someone's been enjoying their food whilst they're away. I remember it vividly. Oh, and I, no. it, yeah. It's horrible. It wasn't like, how was your trip? Tell me everything. It was like, oh, yeah. you've put on a bit of weight. Yeah. And yeah. what was your turning point for you then? Did you reach out and get help? or? Yeah. I was suffering really badly with lower back pain on either side. And I was like, oh, it must be something I'm doing wrong in the gym. So I must have pulled something. And when I went to see the doctor... She basically told me that I was going in sort of kidney fate, like my kid. it was my kidneys wow. because I was just lacking in everything. And then obviously my menstrual cycle had stopped for the last five years. So I was like, why, am I, why aren't I having periods? You know, it's like an intelligent person sitting there asking the question. I look back on it now and I'm like, how did I not know that it yeah. was because of the fact that I was starving? And she just turned around to me and said, look, you're only heading in one direction here. If you want to have children, you've got to start eating and stop stop restricting food and it was Mm -hmm. like that it was like a light switch I mean my eating disorder wasn't over at that point but at that point I knew I had to go and get some help Mm -hmm. I was actually dating somebody at the time because all my relationships went to shit because actually how can you have a relationship when all you're focused on is 
the amount of food you've eaten in the day. And you don't feel like having sex. You, you don't have no. any of all the... There's nothing going on in there inside that makes you feel good because you feel awful. But Ryan, he was lovely and he was instrumental in me getting better, actually. And I did OA, Overeaters Anonymous. Okay. I actually just took myself off to the classes. And when I first went, I thought, oh, God, it's just... It's not going to be for me and there's going to be people in there and it's... OA is a bit confusing, I think, because you think of overeating. But there were... Yeah bulimics there and anorexics and overeaters and a whole mix of eating disorders in the room and it was incredible being able to share because I hadn't spoken for five years really so that was a real turning point that was amazing for, for me getting better so you had to go into a room full of people and talk about it I bet that was really daunting at first to open up especially if you had been on tv by this point yeah was you not worried about opening up in front of strangers basically Yes, and I used to cry myself to sleep the day before that I knew that I had a meeting, but I think it was really important to... I knew I had to get to a point where I could say it in front of people that I didn't know. I had Mm -hmm. to try and normalise it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I remember when I first went and did, like, group therapy, I was terrified, but actually when you sit and you hear other people's stories, you Mm. realise... A, and this sounds awful, there are people that are worse than you, which kind of makes you feel a little bit better. But also just that all these people are there for the same reason and no one cares who you are, what you do, what your situation is. And and hearing other people's stories just makes you go, oh, okay, I'm not the only one. Mm. It's almost like you've lived a lie for the last however many years. I can't and tell you suddenly the way. you're not. Yeah. yeah. I remember this one woman telling me a story in there who was actually an overeater. And she said that she used to walk to the fridge up to 200 times a day. And every time wow. she opened the fridge, she'd eat something. And I had a funny relationship with my fridge where I, I knew that I had to get past my fridge to go upstairs. I was in a flat. But if I could get past the fridge and get into my bedroom and keep myself up there, then I knew that I wouldn't go back down to the fridge. So it was really weird that we both had these stories which were miles apart, but actually very close. Yeah. And do you think any of yours came from social pressure or do you think it's just it was purely just about control? No, it definitely was. I made the fatal mistake. I think it was a combination of making the fatal mistake of going onto these forums and reading because it was before the days of Instagram and Twitter. I'm reading about what people had said about me and playing it straight and going, oh, she's really plump and, oh, they've picked a size 10. And, you know, it was only a size 10. Really? And I think at that point I thought, oh, God, do I need to lose a bit of weight? But actually it goes back to my childhood. And actually I think a lot of anorexics, it's to do with the relationship between your mother and it's about craving being a teenage, like a pre-pubescent girl again. Mm-hmm. I did so much work. <laughs> I did so much work on it at the time. Yeah. So it's all about wanting to be a little girl again and being looked after by your mum. That's what they really? say it is. Yeah. It's interesting. That's so interesting. Because obviously you then put yourself into a childlike state by stopping your periods mm-hmm. and you physic and you visibly look like a little girl, don't you, when you're yeah. that thin. So yeah, yeah, it does make sense. But yeah, it was hard to admit that. Do you kind of look at things on social media and in magazines and things like that? Does, do things like that bother you on behalf of like other people and obviously having girls? Does that worry you? Yeah, it worries me massively, but I'm, I'm excited to see the shift mm-hmm. on social media and in magazines and what we're seeing online. We have to have a range of images. We have to have a normal setup. A normal is not what 
they decide or what yep. someone else decides. It is a range of people, big, tall, heavier, lighter, black, white. We have to see it all because if we see it all, then we then our brain says that's normal and that's normal and that's normal and that's normal. The catwalks, for example, that frustrates me. And it's nice to see now that there's a change coming because I don't want Luna growing up and thinking, oh, I've got to be a size four or a size two to be beautiful. Mm. It's bullshit. You can't enjoy yourself that way. Like, I always think, oh, like, so much of my life is surrounded by, socially, it's surrounded by food, which it yeah. never used to be. When I was, like, working 365 days of the year, it was just, like, you eat when you go. Whereas now I'm, like, socially, it's, do you want to go for dinner? Do you want to go for a drink? Or should we have breakfast, you know, on days yeah. where I'm not working? And um, I think, God, if I wasn't doing that, I probably wouldn't have much of a social life. But also I, I equally think now in the press and things like that, it's like they're still making a big thing of curvy girls being on things, which I think is the wrong thing to do. They should just be there because that's another normal thing to see rather than being like, look, this magazine's got this curvy person on their front cover or this curvy person's putting pictures of herself up on social media. And it's, yeah, that's amazing. But the fact that we're still dramatising that and drawing attention to it shows that it's still not normal. Totally agree with you. I think we're playing catch-up, aren't we? Yeah. It's like you go too far the other way to then maybe hopefully get to the point where it is all just normal and no-one even comments on it anymore. Yeah. At the same time, I sometimes get a bit of stick for not looking like a real mum. What's, what's that then? Well, exactly. That's my point. Like, I've lost out on a job to somebody else because they were more of a real mum than me. And I was like, those are the words that were said to me. I was just more of a real mum. I was like, that's fucking bullshit. What is a real mum? I'm a mum. I've got three children that I look after and love. You know, yeah. I could have been more of a real mum. But that's, I've been judged because I... What I'm, do you think that is? Because it was all what? to do with my weight. Definitely. 100%. Because you're fit. Because I'm fit and healthy and because I'm a size eight. And some right. people have a problem with that and they can't relate to that. But again, that's not. But this is normal to me. This is norm. This is my normal, and my yeah. normal should be your normal, and that person's normal, and that. But we, should, like I said, it's about yeah. accepting whatever body weight you are. You know, if you want to get onto being healthy, that's something else as well. I spent seven years of my life being extremely skinny or looking quite slim, but very unhealthy. I'm now bigger from where I was. If you mm-hmm. want to be a size sixteen and you're comfortable with that and you're really happy with that and you eat well and you do all the things we know we should do great absolutely brilliant mm. it's that's it's madness not, isn't it yeah was you scared to be, to be pregnant because of because i know mm. i only realized i had a problem with food once i got pregnant because i all of a sudden was hungry oh, yeah. i was eating meals and all, all these things that I wasn't doing before. And I actually put on four stone when I was pregnant. I put on loads of weight. But I just remember thinking, oh, my God, like I've spent all these years starving myself and not even really realising and went the extreme. But this is normal. And like now I enjoy food. Like I just used to eat because I had to. I needed the energy and that was what you do. Was this when you were in the band, Frankie? Was this when you were in the band? Yeah. Yeah. So I just think it's just madness to me that it took me to get pregnant, to realise it. But I got so much stick for putting on weight. And then I was still having to perform with the girls and they were all still like a size eight or size six or whatever. And it was because people were used to seeing me a certain way. And I understood that. But also 
for me, it was a massive thing because all of a sudden I had no control over my own body. Yeah. And that was a real learning curve for me. So when I got pregnant the second time, we were trying to get pregnant. But when I fell pregnant, the first thing I said was, oh, my God, I don't want to get fat again. And then I felt awful for saying that. Mm-hmm. And then I got hyperemis and lost half a stone. And then I felt like that was like, I'm not even religious, but I felt like that was God's way of punishing me <laughs> for being like, the first thing you thought of was getting fat when you found out you were pregnant. I definitely thought that. Mm-hmm. I also put on a load of weight during my pregnancies. And I remember the moment that I stood in front of the mirror after I'd given birth to Luna. And I remember just bursting into tears and I was sobbing uncontrollably because I just had been left with this shell of a body that, Yes, I didn't recognise. I didn't recognise it. And it's okay for, for us to say that. People are like, oh, for God's sake, you just had a baby. Yeah, okay, just had a baby. But I've also, I also don't know who this person is anymore. It was weird. Mm. It, it was weird. I took, I've got a photograph of it. It was, just, it was a strange moment for me. Because I think as well, when you gain weight when you're pregnant, you have a bump too. Yeah. So it kind yeah. of all like evens itself out. Whereas when that bump goes, you're like, oh, now I'm left with this body and everyone kind of acts like you should just be happy with that because you've got a baby and yes there is an element of that but I think you should be allowed to feel those things whereas I think sometimes we don't feel like we can because we're lucky to have a baby you struggled to get pregnant didn't you well yeah I mean they told me that I'd never get pregnant naturally because of what my sister had been through with her... her she, we've spoken about it. We actually went on this morning to chat about it. She went okay. through um, early menopause. Um, How old was she? 33. Oh, so she wow. just... Yeah, she was really sad. She came off the pill to try for a baby and it's just heartbreaking for her. And then she was going through all these symptoms and that's what that was. But then I thought, it's hereditary. They told me it was, so I needed to quickly get on with it. Went to a clinic, tried to freeze my eggs... But I didn't manage to do that. I hadn't, I, there wasn't, like, five eggs and then they all just started dying off and then there was only left with one and then they didn't want to go in for that. So that was my sort of journey leading up to it. But actually mm. getting pregnant, Dozza said to me, my now husband said, look, we'd only been dating for eight months. He was like, let's just try naturally. Oh, really? It, yeah. That's so uh, nice. He's mega. Yeah. yeah, it's cliche, but you do know. And I got pregnant within four months, actually. So I didn't struggle. I thought I was okay. going to. And then I got pregnant again with Kit very quickly in Ibiza, the night of DC-10. <laughs> Things were a bit loose that night. Things were a bit loose. We'd had a few too many tequilas. It's when all the babies uh, are made. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was. I thought it was going to be a challenging journey, but obviously my sadness lies with my sister because it never happened for her, and that's been and dating do you for feel the a, Do you ever feel a guilt there? Yeah, I do. I just try and get her involved as much as possible, and she's a great aunt to the kids, and she loves them. She's got a stepson now and because okay. she's got a new partner, and that's all going really well. So it's, it's got a happy ending, but, yeah, I, it's definitely been a tricky time for I her. think my sister has had to have IVF, and she's had four miscarriages, I think, now, and she's my older sister, and she's currently pregnant with twins, and she's, like, <laughs> past the 20-week mark. Fingers crossed everything's okay, but I always just felt this like major guilt that first of all I'm her younger sister as well which I know shouldn't really make a difference but the way society is you would think she would have had kids before me and I just always felt awful because I fell pregnant so easily with Mm -hmm. my two and then my sister-in-law struggled as well and had started to have to go down the IVF route and when you're telling them that you're pregnant (sighs) there is that part of you that just feels awful did you think about having a baby for your sister? Because I did. I, I really seriously thought about it. Yeah. Because, but then 
Catherine didn't have any eggs to give me. So right. it wasn't like she couldn't, she, she could carry, she could host a baby. Yeah. But she didn't have any eggs of her own. Right. So then it would have had to have been one of my eggs. And then what? She would have carried it. Like it, it was too messy. It was too yeah, messy. And I'm just not sure I could have gone through it. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. Do. At one point, we did have that conversation. First of all, I'm one of those people, I really don't enjoy being pregnant. I really like, I, I love the outcome and I can appreciate the magic of it, you know, when you see them and when you feel them. But I get really sick. I gain loads of weight. Hyperemis as well just tipped me over the edge because oh, it's horrendous. Yeah. Um, but if she had like come to me and said, look, this is my last chance. I desperately want you to then maybe I would have thought about it a bit more mm. but equally even though it would have been her egg I know I would have found it strange to carry mm. it and then to give it over and then to have to grow up with that child I mm. think I would mentally feel like they were a part of me and they're well, not and that's why surrogacy is one of the most incredible things that a yeah. woman can do for somebody i chatted to somebody the other day who'd done it five times she'd been a oh, surrogate wow. five times and she had four of her own children oh my goodness no i mean just like wanted to do that for people mm-hmm. and obviously in the uk you can't legally get paid for it it's not like no. in the states it's not a business they can pay for your expenses and various hospital appointments and stuff like that but yeah i mean this woman wow i just completely in awe of her like you said i think i wanted to give it to her as a gift so badly because that's all i that's all she ever wanted was to have kids and when it was taken yeah. away it was just like heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking but yeah when it came down to it i just i'm not sure if i could carry a baby for 9 months and then hand it over i don't no. i don't think i've got i don't know if i'm that person I know. And I think like part of me felt like, is that really selfish? But I Mm. also think it is a really big thing. And she was open to adoption and doing surrogacy another way and stuff like that. So there were other options, but we did have that conversation. And I think it's a really difficult one. I think some people listening would probably really judge that we wouldn't maybe necessarily want to do that for someone we love. But then also, I think it is just it is just a massive thing. And especially for you, as it would have been your own egg. That's a completely different ball game, I think. Yeah. So yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> no, no, and we're not having any more kids now anyway. We've made that decision. So you're done. You're we're done. done. Are you guys done? Yeah, I think so. Think yeah. so or no so? Or no, like I'm still a little bit like I'm still a little bit like some days maybe some days no. Wayne is like a hundred percent done. But he's about eight years older than me. So he's a little bit further down and and I have a stepson as well. So I think for him, he's a bit like, kids are expensive. Let's just chill out. Um, (laughs) Whereas I'm a bit like, oh, I'm still quite young. But I think that's literally all it is. I don't think... I crave 31. Yeah, you're so young. Yeah, Yeah. so I, I crave like a newborn. Yes. Which Wayne doesn't the newborn thing I think most men are quite similar the newborn bit is not really their favorite bit it's when they're a little bit older so he loves this age now whereas I Mm -hmm. find this a bit harder because they can say no and not listen and do what they want whereas babies they're just squidgy and make little furby noises and they sleep poo drink sleep poo drink yeah I don't think my body could go through pregnancy again I don't know what sort of births you had but my pelvic floor is completely shot to pieces really even though you're massively into fitness and... I think it's worse like I, I'm like doing like knee ups and I'm like oh god I've, written, <laughs> I've done a post on this it's just the most upsetting thing to have to go through like we joke about it but 
I just, I think a lot of women don't do their pelvic floor exercises, no. me being one of them. And no, it's like now two, two births later, I've got to get it sorted. I didn't when I was pregnant. And then I think I had two C-sections and they were elected. So I think in yeah. my head, I was like, I don't really need to do it. But yeah. you still have the same pressure on there. And obviously I've had yeah. been cut in half. So it, I still need to do it. But yeah. I hate the feeling of it. I don't know about you, but like it makes me feel like I'm gonna need a wee, and I, oh. I hate it. I just don't like. But I also it. don't know what I'm doing. Like, like I, I, I chatted to somebody about this, and I was like, "What do I do?" And they're like, "Squeeze." I was like, "I think I'm squeezing my bum." Squeeze like you're squeezing in a tampon, they say. But it feels like you're squeezing your bum hole, doesn't it? Try it now. I'm doing it now. It's both, <laughs> no? It's both. It's not both. It's not both. That's the thing. I've got. No, I've got no feeling now. I can't do it. I'm. I screwed. don't know. I actually think I need to go and have an M- a mummy MOT. Have you ever had one of those? No. They're basically like, you probably don't need it, but because you're 31. <laughs> but at 37, no, they just look at what's going on with all your bits and all your parts. Yeah. And they have a look, because I've got diastasis recti still. Have you, have you oh, got... really? Yeah, No still... one's ever checked mine. I don't think I do. Well, there you go. You need to have a M- mummy MOT, Frankie. Where'd you go for one of those? I've got a number. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ring them up. We're both coming in. Yeah, we're coming in. <laughs> Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I'm not, I won't show you now, but you can still get two fingers in between my abs, apparently. And I thought that uh, nine months afterwards, it had all sealed up, but it's actually come apart again. I'm trying to feel right. I don't know. I can't tell. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> did you find, how did you find birth then? Because did you have natural birth? I mean, I had all the drugs under the sun, but I didn't have a C-section. I did yeah. do a vaginal birth. I, I know. Really I was going to say, word. it came out of your vagina, but I'm like... I'm, <laughs> It definitely came out of my vagina, although it felt like it was coming out of my bum. I hated, I hate labour. I'm not really? one of them. I really take my hat off to anybody that has this incredible birthing experience. I really wanted to be one of those women that gets in the pool and gets, we had like a birthing playlist and we had these fake candles and all this scents. And I was like, ah, and then three days later, oh, I, no. I was puking, bleeding. It's not coming out of my nose. I had everything. And then eventually I just pulled the plug and said, you've got to get me to a hospital because I was at a birthing a birthing unit. Is that what they call it? Yeah, midwife-led. I have no idea, right. Yeah, I just said, got to get an ambulance to get me over to the hospital. So I went over to Gloucester um, and was blue-lighted over there because baby's heart, Luna's heartbeat was like going right, right, rocketing down. So it was a bit scary at that point. Plus my waters had broken three days before that, so there was a risk of infection. And then eventually yeah. I had epidural, uh, forceps, episiotomy. That was the oh, end. Oh, no. And the second time round, obviously, I knew it was going to... I could have kind of thought, well, I know now I'm slightly more prepared. So I, as soon as I went into contractions, it was a lot quicker as well. I had the epidural straight away, so there was no pain. I'm not yeah. very good. I thought I'd be a bit harder, but I, apparently I'm absolutely pathetic. I just think there's just, like, a sense of no control as well. And that's what I always thought about. I, my doctor recommended that I had C-section, but... And at the time, I was open to both options. Mm. But actually, part of me was like, I just don't like that I don't know what's going to happen. And me being how I am anxiety-wise, I think a lot of giving birth is about letting go and yeah. letting it happen. Whereas, obviously, we get the fear and the pain and you tense up, and then, which is all things you're probably not supposed to do. And I just know that I would not be able to just let it go. Yeah. And I, I don't know, you did well to do it again. <laughs> Yeah, I think the thing was that everybody has got an opinion on what sort of birth 
it will oh, be. Yeah. You know, even like before you've had the baby, they're guessing the gender and they know. If someone yeah. comes over and goes, you're definitely having a girl. It's like, how can you see inside my womb? No. Yeah. And I think what I should have done was just be a bit more fluid. Like you said, with my choice, I had a, a really strict birthing plan. And I say to anybody now, listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you a range of birth stories, but it will be completely unique. The only advice I can give you is to be fluid when it mm. comes to it, because I was so dead set on giving birth with the midwives and staying in the, I just kept going on and on. I just wasn't dilating. It just wasn't happening for me, but I should have done it. 24 hours earlier, I should have gone, right, this isn't happening. But epidurals weren't even spoken about. Like some NCT classes that you go to, my friend had this experience where they, she wrote up on the wall, you know, the things that you can have during your birth. And it was like, maybe a bit of paracetamol. And then the other side, epidural in red, underlined. No. I'm sorry, what? This is our choice, our body. You need to be given all of the options when you're yeah. going into labour. And I also think we're in a country where we're, we're lucky that these things are an option. There's yeah. people in the world, that's not an option. They have to, their birth is a natural birth and whatever happens. And I think for us to not take advantage of those things is almost selfish so this whole thing of like I remember when I was pregnant and it was like oh oh I had three babies just gassonaire oh I had a baby and I didn't have anything and 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 I knew at this point that I was having a c-section and I just used to think I don't really care how you had your baby or as long as they're fine and it's the same with parenting and it's the same with breastfeeding and everything else that happens afterwards is everyone's got so much to say and yeah. and and we know now okay we know that breastfeeding is best for our baby but it doesn't always work and yeah. it's not always easy and as long as the baby's fed, that's what's best. Totally. And I'm really close to Vogue Williams. She also works here at Heart. And she's mm. obviously going in, hopefully, any day now to have her baby. <laughs> and she posted something on her about her hospital bag the other night. And she reposted the comments that she got because she had some SMA starter formula yeah. in there. People were like, why have you got a formula? That it's like... It's a fucking choice if she wants to have formula. Yeah. No one's berating you for breastfeeding. Great. I'm really happy that breastfeeding's working out for you, and I really support that. I also really support women who choose to formula feed or choose to breastfeed but can't do it or don't want to do it and then formula feed. Let's talk about this here. It's 2020. We're not in the dark ages. Mm -hmm. I had a, a very interesting up-and-down journey with my breastfeeding. The first two months were bleeding, oozing, and I remember the midwife coming around and going... Just feed through it. And I was crying. And oh, it's so bleep. painful. Just feed yeah. through the pain. I'm like, that, what? And I did. And I, in a way, wished that I hadn't because it was hard for me and I only managed to do it for a month after that. With Kit, it was a breeze. But I support whatever choice you make as a woman. And I think we should be told more of that. Mm. That's one kids. of my biggest hates. I feel like there's this new... Because of maybe people are so accessible, there's just, like, this new need to take people down. It's like yeah. you say one wrong thing or whatever. Instead of just discussing it, like you said, like, let's have a conversation about it. There's loads yeah. of different options. And it's like, you're doing this wrong and you're a bad parent. It goes from, like, naught to 100. And I think, especially with parenting, it's like we're all just trying to do our best. So why are we all trying to call each other out on things? I just don't, I don't understand it. Have you found like, I don't know, since being a parent, do you find that your anxiety and stuff is almost better or, or worse? Up and down. Yeah. <laughs> Different. My anxiety regarding myself and how I look and all of that 
stuff that I suffered with in my 20s, striving to be perfect and always going out with a full face of makeup and hair, and that doesn't bother me anymore. And I actually feel more confident in my own skin now than I ever have done, and that comes from looking at my kids and thinking, well, I'm not the most important thing anymore. It's all about them. You know, if I do nothing else in this world, I've done the best thing because I've got three, these three kids. Mm. So that side of it is great and brilliant. And then the other side of it is, please don't hurt yourself. Please mm. don't die. I don't want to die. I worry about that because I'm like, who will look after them if we both? Yeah. I just, all of that sort of really irrational stuff. You know, I'm a bit of a <gasps> mum. It doesn't all stop it. Like, I can't help it. I don't want them to hurt themselves. Kit falls over and I'm like, try not to rush to him. But yeah, I think it's just because I've seen the worst thing happened to me, my dad dropping dead. And I think when you've seen somebody that you love that much die, you always think it's going to happen again. Yeah. Um, and how and old were you? 30. Yeah. It was hard. It was really hard. And I say that to Dozer sometimes because he says, oh, I don't understand. Why are you worried about all this stuff? And I'm like, well, because the man that was supposed to live forever died. And yeah. you're not taught that your parents, obviously you're not taught that your parents won't be here one day. But then when the rugs pulled away and it happened so quickly, it, I still feel like I'm in shock. Yeah. Even though it was seven years ago yeah. next week. It's mad, it's mad, madness, but it does make sense. I'm definitely processing that still. Yeah, and that was seven years ago. Yeah. But I think you just never really think of your life without your parents. Like, my mum is, like, in her 60s, and yeah. she now has, doesn't have either of her parents. And and I remember at the time once, my nan died first ages ago, but my granddad more recently, and... He was ill for a really long time. He was in bed and she was looking after him all the time and, you know, doing things that you don't want to have to do for a parent and, like, wiping their bum and things like that. And I felt really sorry for her at the time, but when he when he passed, it was, like, almost like, finally, because it sounds awful, but he had wanted to be with my nan years ago and he was ready and he wasn't in a good way. But I remember, like... I knew she'd be sad, but I think I was really shocked at how much it affected her. And mm. I sat down and really thought about it. And I thought, but she has no parents left. Like, yeah. she's on her own now. And she's had her whole life with them. And then I just thought, God, it doesn't matter how old you are or how old your parents are. Like, you just never, you know it's going to happen. But I, I just think you just, you never think it will. That's it. And that is it in a nutshell. Yeah. That's really beautifully articulated because... Are you supposed to hit 40 for it to be okay? Or is it 50? Yeah. Or, you know, you're still losing the person that has always been there and that has raised you and brought you up and been your comfort. And for me, he was this, like, strong pillar of strength that was always there and super supportive. And the speed of his death, it was like, gone, bang, gone, heart attack, just gone. And I wasn't there. And then, then the next time I saw him, he was lying on a bed. Yeah, it's so hard to get your head around. It's like, how does that... But I knew I had to see him because I don't think you can process death. And I knew it would be scary, but I thought, well, I can't... Because I spoke to him six hours ago and he was yeah. fine, he was alive. So I knew I had to go through that. But that leaves leaves the hole. So I, th I think I try to say, when Luna says to me, oh, you'll never leave me, will you, mummy? And oh, God. And I say to her, I will... I will try and walk with you for as long as I can. Yeah. Because I don't want to come around to her and go, well, there's going to be a day where I won't be here. But at the same time, I don't... Yeah, I'm just trying to learn from what I went through, I think. You don't want to be Sorry. like, yeah, no, I'm always yeah. going to be here. And yeah. 
I know. Don't you nearly make me cry then? <laughs> you just never want to think about it, do you? For your no. kids and like, I remember Wayne and I because we had Parker when when we got married, and we went on our honeymoon. And I'm not a great flyer anyway, but we both were on the plane, and then I was like we haven't done a will. And he was like, what? And I was just like, we're both on the plane and Parker's not here and we haven't organised anything. And what happened? And he was just like, we we just got married and we were (laughs) going on our honeymoon and this is what you're thinking about. And I was like, I know it's ridiculous, but I just can't help it. And I think you just start thinking of things like that, especially if you've been through what you've been through. But also just as a parent, you, I, I suppose you have to think about these things. So we hard. do, we do, and I think there's a really beautiful lesson in, in about taking, like living, I really try and live every day and have a great time and not worry mm-hmm. about all the little stuff. And yeah, it sounds so cheesy to say it, doesn't it? But you don't know when it's all not going to be here. And, and again, what a morbid subject, but actually life is so delicate and so gentle, actually, mm. that actually we need to be kind, we need to love, we need to say everything, we need to make ourselves really happy by doing mm. whatever that is and find happiness here. Yeah, I think I, I'm exactly the same as you as well with my anxiety. My anxiety almost got better when I had my kids because I learned that I couldn't control everything yeah. and I cared less about me and my worries. Like you said, how I, I still care about how I look, obviously, but not in the same way. And I kind of learned that they are going to fall and they are going to cry. And But also it taught me that when you're watching them and they're playing with bubbles or they're jumping on the trampoline and they're literally like that they're having the best moment in their life. And it's these small, simple things that do that. And I feel like I learned a lot from that. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, everyone says it. You need to live in the moment. You need to do these things. But actually seeing it for yourself, it does make you learn a lot, I think. So it's so lovely, isn't it? We're so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say then? So you've been amazing. You've opened up about so many things. What would be your tip? for I know it's a difficult one but for anyone trying who knows someone that they think is suffering maybe from an eating disorder how would you say to maybe approach that with someone I think it's very easy to because we don't know the words and we can't find the right sentences sometimes to run away or at least kind of ignore it well ignore it they'll get better so I think you need to to really take it with kid, kid gloves and really love that person and nurture them. They need nurturing. They're getting no nurturing from food, anything like that, so they need you to love them. So I think standing by somebody like that and letting them know that you're there, saying Mm -hmm. to them that you're going, there's no judgment, there's no shame, that you want to help them, explaining to them that you're not going anywhere. It's about looking after that child, even if they're a grown-up, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So just being there, I think, and, and, and fronting up to that awkward conversation, even if they slam the door in your face 20 times. Just keep trying. Yeah, and anybody suffering with an eating disorder who's listening to this, like, I'm absolutely... Well, we're proof that you can get better, that it doesn't mm-hmm. have to plague you for the rest of your life, and that you can have children, and that you can get well. OK, thank you. That's so lovely. I think there'll be so many people listening that needed to hear that, and... Um, Like I said, you've been so open about so many different subjects, which is quite unusual sometimes in our line of work. So thank you. So important to have these chats and I've loved chatting to you. (laughs) That was the gorgeous Zoe Hardman there. That was such a lovely chat and I'm so grateful that she shared her story with us today. 
Now remember, this podcast is all about encouraging us to be open and have those hard but important conversations. If you're struggling with your mental health, the best thing you can do is to talk to someone. If you'd rather chat to someone impartial, there are plenty of resources and support provided by the mental health charity Mind. That's mind.org.uk. So that's all from me for now. Until next time, so look after yourself.